Well, I am very excited to be uh, speaking to you this morning. Uh, two, two quick things. First of all, I'm excited because we are going to end with a real focus on Jesus Christ. And I get to, uh, I get to proclaim his goodness to you this morning. I'm really excited to do that. The other thing that I just want to warn you about is we're going to be spending a lot of time in Paul's scriptures today. That is Pauline scriptures. So you can get your fingers ready if you'd like to uh, um, move back and forth there, although, of course, we'll always return to Philippians 2. Have you ever tried not to think about something? We have a bit of a running joke in our family. I always ask the boys, you know, as I see them stare off into space, what are you thinking about? Uh, one of them in particular always answers, nothing. And we joke that you cannot not be thinking about something. It's interesting that our mind is always contemplating something. It's always tending to some subject. There's always a topic that our mind is mulling over. So that's an interesting thing, I think, and, and I want to apply this, uh, this characteristic, if you will, of us as humans to a rather unfortunate reality that each of us must face. The question is, as we think about things, how often do we think about others? How often do we think about others and not ourselves. I mean, many times we're just plain selfish, right? I mean, many times we want what we want, whether it's a good job or a nice meal or a comfortable house or a reliable car or whatever. We just want for ourselves. And and I'm not saying that that's wrong. I, I think that's just part of who we are. Of course, we can't get out of our own mind. We can't get out of our own language. Right? We are always thinking in English, for those of you whose native tongue is English. We can't get out of that. We can't get outside of our own mind. So I don't think it's necessarily wrong. I'm just pointing out that this is what we do as human beings. And we are always thinking about things from our own perspective. Now, sometimes we might think that we are thinking of others, or we might think that a particular person is thinking of others. But in reality, I think often we're just a bit duped because we're really thinking of ourselves, even though on the surface it might uh, appear that we're thinking of others. I remember meeting a man uh, one time several years ago, uh, and after a mere few seconds into the conversation, he was telling me about how much money he had given to a local university and had a building named after him. A few more Minutes into the conversation, he was telling me about how much money he'd given to a local municipality. And this municipality had named a park after him. Before long, he was telling me another municipality that he had given money to. And five or ten minutes into the conversation, I knew that him giving the money was not for others. It was really for how it made him feel about himself. He gave the money for himself and how it made him feel, not not for others to whom it did benefit. 
So, you know, we might think that this is horrible and perhaps it is an extreme example, but I wonder if we realize on maybe a lesser scale how often we do that in our own relationships. Most of the time it is with those with whom we're the closest, maybe our spouse or our children, where we say something or do something, not really about them, but the benefit that it comes to us or the benefit that comes to us. We want our children to act in a certain way or do a certain thing, so we do something. But once again, really, it's about us, not about them. Another extreme example that I'll just share with you uh, occurred a few years ago while Beth and I were attending one of our son's football games. Another parent was watching his son uh, play, and after a few minutes, it became obvious that he was not pleased with how his son was playing. He was screaming at the boy, and we were already becoming a bit anxious because of the spectacle that it was becoming. And at one point, he screamed in the midst of the whole crowd so that everyone could hear, come on, Bobby, I didn't come here to have you embarrass me. Translation, his son's playing football is all about him, not his son or not the team. At that point, Beth jabbed me and said, Tracy, go say something to him. (laughs) So anyway, this morning I want to talk about a gospel characteristic And then I want to lead us to a gospel-oriented God. The reality of the gospel, God's free grace and love and life, which frees us to think about others. And then this morning, we're going to be considering that in light of gospel ministry, which is the context of Philippians 2. So let's read Philippians 2, starting in verse 19. Paul says, or he writes, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like-minded who will genuinely be concerned for the things that concern you. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know his character, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly... I myself will come also. So this morning I want to unpack these five verses by way of three indications of gospel character or gospel identity. Paul wanted to check in on the Philippians here in this passage, but he himself was not, unable, uh, was not able to go for various reasons. He needed to be able to send someone who would be concerned with the Philippians and not someone who would be concerned about themselves. Really, this entire chapter has that flair to it. We begin with Jesus in Philippians 2, and we're going to end next week with Epaphroditus. And here is Timothy in the middle. So the first characteristic, we'll see this quite clearly, is a concern for others. Look at verse 20. He says, I have no one like-minded who will genuinely concern themselves for the things that concern you, who will genuinely be anxious for your welfare, Philippians, and not their own welfare. 
the Greek here, reflected in the King James Version, New King James, New American Standard, says that Paul has no one else who is like-minded or who has a kindred spirit. There's no one with whom the same kind of spirit dwells, the same spirit that dwelt in Christ Jesus, the same spirit that dwells in Paul, he says, the same spirit that dwell, will dwell in Epaphrodites, who will be concerned for others. In other words, Timothy is the one person that I can send among many that uh, Paul apparently felt like he couldn't send. Matter of fact, if you look at the next verse, he mentions that, quote, they all seek after their own interests. So Timothy here is a bit of a unique, uh, a unique person. Timothy, he's convinced, will seek the welfare of you Philippians, whereas all these others apparently will seek after their own interests. Matter of fact, in Philippians 1, listen to verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Verse 16, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So do you see what's going on here in Paul's context, in the Philippians' context? You know, I think many times we think that uh, we think of the New Testament church or the uh, apostolic period that we have this kind of romantic idea that everything was, you know, everything was happy and everybody was good. And, you know, since it was closer to the time of Christ and the pouring out of the Spirit, that there was this purity in all of the believers and all of the church. Well, it, not so. We can clearly see that here in Philippians. We're going to see that in other letters too. But we can clearly see here that Paul is worried about everyone else in his context, apparently, or at least many people in his, comment, uh, in his context that are literally preaching Christ out of envy, jealousy, and strife. He mentioned these opponents in Philippians 1. Philippians 1, 27 and 28, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And listen, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation from God. He also alludes to this strife in chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. He says, make, my, make full my joy that you be of the same mind, have the same love, being of one accord, one-minded, one, one spirit. Do nothing through factions or strife or through vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, each counting other the better than himself, not looking for your own interests, but for the interests of others. So some, if we look at verse 3, were apparently doing this out of strife, out of vain glory. Can you imagine? I say tongue-in-cheek. So there were strife or factions in which people were doing ministry-oriented things, but really they were doing those things for vain glory. Let me say that again. They were doing ministry-oriented things. They were even preaching the gospel. but they were doing it for vain glory. They were not doing it for the true sake of Christ and his people, his kingdom. 
Now, he actually gets more specific on who these people are in chapter 3, which we'll be addressing uh, after Christmas. In in, uh, chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, i.e., those who circumcise. Verse 3, he says, For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. This is very strong language for Paul to use. Once again, we're going to look at this after Christmas. But we'll see even this morning how he addresses this in other books as well. It's a very strong language. He's literally calling out Israel. And he's saying, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. So Paul knew Timothy would put their interests, the Philippians' interests, above his own. Paul knew that Timothy would not use the Philippian church. He would not use these new or these young or impressionable Christians for his own ambition and for his own ego. For himself to think better about himself. Instead, he would think, of their interest. Look at another term Paul uses here in Philippians 2.20. He says, who will be genuinely, genuinely concerned for the Philippians. So here again, we see Paul trying to address the heart rather than the outer appearance. Paul knew that Timothy would literally, somewhere down deep inside him, genuinely be interested for the Philippian believers. It's not enough to do what is right on the outside. One must do what is right on the inside for it to really count for the kingdom. It's not enough to do what is right on the outside. Now, only because I know myself, I know that you also struggle with what is on the inside. One must be genuine. Now, I've thought about this quite a bit, once again, just because of my own thought life. The Lord wants us to be pure of heart. The Lord wants us to be satisfied in Him. The Lord wants us to look for the next world, not for this one. Now listen, listen to me just for a second. Is it too much? Would it be too much for God to make someone as rich as Bill Gates if he wanted to? Would that be too much for God? Would it be too much for the Lord to make you the most powerful man in the world? To make you the most beautiful woman in the world? Would that be too much for the Lord? Of course it wouldn't. That wouldn't be too much for the Lord. It wouldn't be too much for the Lord to, to uh, give you the perfect children. It wouldn't be too much for the Lord to give you the perfect job, which made you, which, which made you a lot of money. That wouldn't be too much for the Lord. The Lord could do that. If the Lord created the universe, if he holds all of this thing together, if he raised Jesus from the dead, if he literally put a new spirit in you, 
If he's preparing the end of the world, I mean, that wouldn't be too much for the Lord. The Lord could do that if he wanted to. So why do we think about ourselves? Of course he could do those things. But that's not what he is trying to do. He wants you, he wants me, he wants us to be satisfied in him and to glory in him. To think about the next world, the city which is to come, not the city which is here and now. Once we're satisfied in him, We do not need to seek fame or glory or strength or riches or even perfection in some sense because we're satisfied in God. We know he loves us as a father, his own son or daughter. If you're a parent here, you have no problem recognizing how much you love your own child and would gladly give your life for them But we have a problem connecting that with God to us many times. Think about this. God is more pleased and glorified in our quiet, private worship and obedience, which maybe no one else sees. Imagine this for a second. Imagine if you have a choice before you. You have a choice to obey or disobey. And you think on Christ, and you want to worship Christ, and in, the pri- in that private moment, because of God and his love for you, you obey. God is more glorified in that quiet, private moment of obedience than all of Bill Gates' billions. All of the money that Bill Gates gives to charity, hundreds of millions, God is more satisfied and pleased and glorified with you, Christian, if you're a Christian here today, in your private moment of obedience than in Bill Gates' billions. And I say that because Bill, Bill Gates is not a Christian of his own admission, although he's moral. God is more pleased in your private moment of worship and obedience that is genuine than all of Napoleon's victories, assuming Napoleon wasn't Christian, which I don't know. God is more pleased with your praise of him that comes from a genuine heart than all of Caesar's glory. All of Putin's oil. God is more pleased in one act of obedience that comes from the genuineness of your spirit. Timothy was genuinely concerned about others. One more example. Think about a big-name preacher. I don't want to name any because I don't know them personally, many of them. Certainly there are those that are motivated not primarily, or let's say only, by the concerns of their congregations, but maybe by fame. Maybe by glory. Maybe by 
applause. God is concerned with our inward life, and it's only the gospel, brothers and sisters, that will purify our inward life. The first characteristic is a genuine concern for others. The second characteristic is a concern grounded in those interests of Jesus Christ. Listen to Philippians 2.21. Paul says, For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. So notice here that uh, Timothy's first characteristic was that he thought of others. That doesn't necessarily mean that he just thought of others, he enabled them, he just always was like, okay, whatever, you know, I love you, and you know, so do what you want to do. No, that's not the idea here. Timothy was interested in the concerns of Jesus Christ. If Paul would have sent others, they would have sought their own interests. In other words, these so-called ambassadors, had Paul sent them, would not have sought the Philippians' interest or Jesus' interests, but they would have used it for the, he would have used, it, used the Philippians for his own gain or for their own gain. You've probably heard the saying, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. I think there's a bit of truth to that. Listen to Romans 16, 18, and this is where we'll begin to jump around in Paul's scriptures a little bit, Pauline scriptures. Romans 16, 17 says, Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who create dissensions and obstacles contrary to the teaching that you learned. Listen to this. For these are the kind who do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. Beware, O Christian. These are the kind who do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By their smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of the naive. Or listen again to Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Not according to strife or empty conceit, vainglory, but in humility regard one another better than yourselves. So how does this strife or this vainglory, these factions, tell us of who Paul had in mind here with this they all, this they Well, here, once again, we should be aware of Paul's history, his adversarial relationship with the Judaizers, which we see clearly in a couple of his books, but none more clearly than in Colossians 2. Listen to this, Colossians 2. Therefore, Paul says to uh, the Colossians, do not let anyone judge you with regard to food or drink or in the matter of a feast or a Sabbath day or a new moon. These are only shadows of things to come, but the real thing is Christ. He says, let no one who delights in humility and the worship of angels pass judgment on you. That person goes on at great lengths about what he has supposedly seen, but he is puffed up with empty notions by his fleshly mind. Later, he goes on, he says, even though they have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, false humility achieved by unsparing treatment of the body, they they in reality result in fleshly indulgence. So this kind of self-seeking indulgences has the appearance of religion on the outside, but on the inside, it's dead. This is an earthly focus, not a heavenly focus, not a next world focus. It's a this world focus. Paul says that's false. That's just fleshly indulgence. That has nothing to do with true gospel-oriented ministry to others. These are the types of people who are contrasted with the things with those who are focused, or Timothy, who is focused on the things of Christ Jesus. People who are focused on the things of Christ Jesus 
results or result in freedom, love, peace, a future focus, not a this worldly focus. You remember the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5? The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Notice we always have these things. We know these things are sins. Now listen to the next list. Enmity, fighting. Strife, fighting. Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. This is the list that the church doesn't quite know well enough, apparently. Drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Envy, rivalries, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited. Notice all of these words keep occurring in Paul's lists. Conceit, vainglory. Provoking one another, envying one another. Why is it? Why is it? When I hear of another church that's doing well in the area, that my first response is jealousy. Why is that? Why is it that my second response is insecurity of who I am? Why is that? Inside, I have to fight against feeling cheated, feeling envious angry, I wonder, do I measure up? Confessions of a former pastor. Why is that? But notice that this kind of thinking does not understand God's love for me grounded in Jesus Christ. Notice that the feelings of inadequacy do not understand God's love for you, O daughter or son of the Most High God. Whenever you're feeling insecure, if you're a Christian here today, and you're feeling insecure, it's a failure to believe that the Father loves you. It's unbelief in the gospel that we proclaim. Notice also that when I think those things about being jealous of other churches or other pastors who, who preach better sermons or, from my own uh, context, better uh, professors who write better books, notice that when I think those things, I'm not really interested in the things of Jesus Christ. I'm interested in me. I'm interested in how it makes me feel. And I want, I want those things because that must be where I get my security instead of God's death for me in Christ Jesus, instead of God's choosing me from before the foundation of the world, instead of from the Holy Spirit who 
more recent, in more recent years has raised me up to new life. My jealousy and insecurity show that I'm interested in me, and I don't believe in God's love for me and what he has already done for me. The second characteristic of Timothy's is a concern grounded in those interests of Jesus Christ. Well, the third characteristic is interested in the gospel first. Paul says in Philippians 2.22, But you know his character, his proven worth, this word is. How as a son with a father, he has served with me for the gospel or in the gospel. Timothy's goal was to serve for the gospel, in the gospel, Paul says. And Paul had seen it. He said he's got proven worth. Timothy had lived with Paul. He'd been with Paul for years. And his experience, Paul's experience with Timothy, told, told him that it was proven. His character was proven. He'd seen him serve for the sake of the gospel. And the gospel is born out of and works towards the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, not one's own kingdom. 1 Corinthians 16.10 says, When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, because he is doing the work of the Lord. Of course, there in Corinthians, there were those only interested in dissension and division. Listen again. For you, Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3, you are still of the flesh, Corinthians. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Now maybe it's only me here who is jealous of others. Okay, I see one person nodding no, so that gives me comfort. Paul says... Actually, he says in verse 4, he goes on, For when one says, I follow Paul, another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each one. I planted Apollos water, God causes the growth. Neither he uh, who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives growth. He goes on in verse 21, Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Do you see what Paul's saying here? All things are yours, O Corinthians. Christian, all things are yours. Whether Paul or Paulus or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, Christian. You are Christ's and Christ is God's. We've got it made. And he goes on, 1 Corinthians 4, I have applied all of these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up, conceited, vainglory, in favor of one against the other. Well, many years ago, I worked in the business world, and at one point we were trying to, uh, or or our uh, bosses were trying to get us to think about improvement in our systems and processes. And they were trying to get us to ask questions regarding our systems and processes in this uh, particular energy conglomerate to, to improve our systems. So they were encouraging us to ask five why questions about every process, right? So, you know, why do you do this? You know, because your first answer would be, well, that's the way we've always, always done it. Right, then your second answer, your second question is, well, why have you always done it that way? And eventually five 
five questions down, right, five layers down, you begin to get to some real issues and motivations. So it just so happened that I had just begun walking with Christ at this point, uh, again, this was in 1991, 1992, and so I thought, well, I'll apply this uh, five-question uh, five question exercise to my Christian life. I thought, oh, this would be a good thing to do. I'll, I'll see, see why I'm doing things. So I had uh, recently graduated from college. I was poor in college. I was actually poor growing up. And Infinity, right, the Infinity Car Company had just come out. And some of, the, some of you might remember that f- first commercial. It was rather controversial because all they showed was a cloud, right? They didn't show the car. This was a marketing gimmick. And it worked on me, right, because I decided I wanted an Infinity. And once again, I had worked this job, and so for the first time in my life, I had money, and uh, I thought, well, I'm going to buy an Infinity, right? And so sure enough, there was a car dealership that opened up there in Wichita, Kansas, and, and where I was at the time, and I thought, man, this is great. So I, I drive down to go to the lot one Saturday morning, and I thought, hmm, I'm going to apply these five questions. I literally was doing this on the way to the lot. So I'm like, okay, why do I want an Infinity? Well, it's a nice car. Okay, why do I want a nice car? Well, I want to drive down the road in that nice car. <laughs> why do I want to drive down, in, drive down the road in that nice car? Well, I want to be seen in that car. Well, why do I want to be seen in that car? Well, I want other people who drive down the road. Now, you, you know, this is a long time ago, so I'm not quite this sinful anymore, all right? <laughs> Why do I want people driving down the road to see me in this car? And about five wise down, it became obvious. I want people who I don't even know and will never know and will never see again, who I don't even see, I want them to drive by and think, wow, look at that guy. <laughs> He's driving an infinity. Is that shallow or what? incredibly shallow, but that was me 20 years ago. And at some level, that is us as Christians. So did you know today that if you're a Christian here, that the creator of the world loves you more than you can fathom. The closest thing that you could probably get to it is to recognize how much you love your own son or daughter. But that's not, that's, that's, that doesn't even get it. The king of the universe loves you more than you know. He wants the absolute best for you. He has you in mind. He wants you to find your satisfaction in the only thing that will eternally satisfy you. And that is himself. He loved you before the foundation of the world, the Bible says. He actually chose you before the world existed, the Bible says. 2,000 years ago, he died 
for your future sin, which was all future at that point. Even the sins that you will commit later today in your selfish thinking, he died for if you're a Christian here today. And he loves you. More recently, God himself showed up in your life somewhere, some, at some point, if you're a Christian here today, at some point since you've been alive. He showed up, and although you were dead in sin and were unable to do anything good or righteous, the Bible says, he raised you up to new life. The same power, the Bible says, that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, literally raised you from dead life to new life in Christ Jesus. And that's only the beginning of how good it's going to get. Because later on, he's going to raise up you literally. And there's going to be this great party in heaven. Thanksgiving won't even compare. And just in case we forget this, Keep this in mind, that Jesus Christ, though he was very God himself, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped at, a thing to be, a thing to be held on tightly to. Instead, he emptied himself and he took on the form of a slave. He was born in the likeness, this God who created the whole universe, literally, was born as a human. And being found in a human, he humbled himself. He could, have, he could have conquered nations and men. He could have ridden through streets in glory. Instead of doing that, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of a terrible and shameful death death on a cross let's pray father what can we say we can only say first of all lord thank you we're so glad we don't understand it but we're so glad that you found it appropriate to save us and to avail yourself to us so that we might be called sons and daughters of you, Father. Lord, and now we just simply pray, as Paul prayed for the Ephesians, that somehow we might understand the height and the depth and the width of your love for us in Christ Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.